Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From a young age, Tom Smith knew he wanted to pursue a career in law enforcement. So it only made sense that he would follow in his father's footsteps and become an NYPD detective. Throughout his career, Tom handled it all. Narcotics, robberies, even homicide. After the horrific September 11th terror attacks on New York City, Tom became a member of the FBI-NYPD Joint Terrorism Task Force, where he coordinated numerous high-priority cases. All cases were equal, but one autumn day in 2008, Tom's supervisor came to him with a significant case. A well-known reporter with the New York Times had been kidnapped in Afghanistan and was being held hostage by an Al-Qaeda-affiliated group. The assignment? Get him home. This would be a once-in-a-lifetime case. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. In 2008, while reporting on the conflict in the Middle East, New York Times journalist David Rode, along with two others, were abducted at gunpoint by members of the Taliban. This case at hand was incredibly sensitive, and Tom understood the global attention. He coordinated with various agencies, including the FBI, CIA, NSA, and the U.S. Navy SEALs, in order to create a complex investigation of the kidnappers. Working on this case, Tom became the second NYPD detective sent to Afghanistan, leaving behind his life and his family. While there, Tom needed a source to bring the agencies closer to the hostage situation. Having experience with gangs and other New York City offenders, Tom needed a criminal that knew the area well. His asset of choice? The largest heroin dealer in the country. This case is fascinating, and joining me now to bring us into that heart-racing operation is retired NYPD detective and co-host of the Gold Shields podcast, Tom Smith. After 9-11, the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York got dramatically expanded. It was a, a smaller unit uh, before 9-11. And then once 9-11 happened, especially on the NYPD part, it expanded dramatically to become the largest JTTF in the country. And we ran operations in Europe and covered the Middle East, whereas the West Coast covered Southeast Asia and the uh, the Far East. So we were responsible for anything going on in the Middle East. 
and especially after 9-11 with al-Qaeda being so prevalent, uh, we were kind of all over that. So when we get picked up, you get split up into different teams in JTTF, uh, depending on what area you're going to work. At the time of this incident, I was working uh, on a Middle East team, specifically al-Qaeda. So when this came up uh, in November of 2008, I was assigned to the case along with another individual from my squad. And the marching orders were very, very specific. Get him home. Do whatever was necessary to get him home. Find out his location. Find out who was responsible and do everything we could under the sun to get him home. Now, uh, when you're and involved... And Tom, who, who exactly was him? Tell us exactly who is him. David Rode was a New York Times reporter who was over in Afghanistan to do a story and uh, was grabbed by an al-Qaeda group, the Haqqani Network. Him, his driver, and another individual that was actually set free uh, shortly after the abduction. His driver and David were kept uh, in different locations in Afghanistan during this time frame. And forgive my ignorance here, explain to us the org chart for JTTF at that time. Is this a well, joint federal and state task force then? Do our federal tax dollars, you know, are you reporting eventually up to the commander in chief or is this the, the chief of NYPD and you just work in concert with federal agents? We're, we're still NYPD detectives and we had a chief at the time that we, you know, were directly uh, under, but it is run by the FBI. So we're more in line with the, the federal agencies than just the NYPD. So our our it got complicated sometimes because we kind of served two masters. You know, we had to keep the NYPD hierarchy in the loop about what we were doing. But more of a priority was keeping the federal apparatus of it up to date. And they were kind of in charge of what we were doing. Uh, They had more of a say in, you know, like you said, marching orders, case uh, distribution, who was covering what. So it was more of a FBI task force than anything. And the way JTTF is set up, there's, at the time I was there, were about 54 different agencies under one umbrella of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. And they were federal, local, state, all sorts of agencies. There were some departments that had just one detective assigned to JTTF to, you know, uh, to feed back to their departments, anything relevant in that area. So it was a, it was a monster. Uh, JTTF in New York was made up of actually three different uh, units. You had the domestic, you had international, you had an intel unit. So all these units would work in conjunction when major events were taking place either around the world or in New York. And can you explain the elite caliber of not only JTTF, but clearly um, of the NYPD and your relationships with the other intelligence communities and the like, because I know oftentimes when we think about a kidnapped journalist or some or an American held hostage in a foreign um, adversarial situation, you, you know, a, a lot of us picture SEAL Team 6 going in or we picture, you know, um, the teams that are in the shadows part of the IC. But to, to learn that NYPD is who was tasked with exfiltrating out a, a hostage journalist is uh, so impressive. Can you share exactly why? Well, it was one of those events that, you know, as a detective, you always want that case. You know, when you're growing up and you're coming through the ranks, you want to get tasked with that case. 
And that's what this was. And I just happened to, uh, I had a lot of experience in the NYPD. You know, I retired after 30 years. So once I was there, you know, I did a lot of investigations and uh, was pretty resourceful in in people that I knew and, and had to go about certain things. So when this happened, I was tasked by our supervisory special agent, called me into his office, said, hey, you're going to run this with uh, Jim. You know, this came up. This is what you're going to do. And I was actually in the middle of running a very large case at the time that was mine that I actually had to put on hold for a little while because of this case. Uh, And Jay asked me, you know, are you okay doing that? I said, absolutely. You know, this is priority. We have to get this done. Uh, So that's how it was. And and the way, you know, the eliteness of, of JTTF, if you think about it, at the time there were probably five to 7,000 detectives in the NYPD, and there were only 100 assigned to JTTF. Uh, So, you know, you take that, you know, you're prideful in yourself with that, with getting asked to to join such a unit, especially after 9-11 was when a lot of us got picked up and got asked to join uh, the JTTF. And it took a little while because you have to go through your background check, you have to get your security clearances, you know, so that took some time. But, you know, your question with, with how we dealt with uh, other agencies being in the NYPD, everyone, everyone understands once you're in JTTF, you're kind of equal. Everyone's the same. No one's above anyone. If you're running a case, whether you're a detective or an agent, it's yours, you know, and everyone respects that. And even a little more sometimes coming from the NYPD because of it being the NYPD, you know, uh, and the experience that that we were able to give to our federal partners, you know, in what we did in our careers, they respected, you know, and I never had any issue with any other, you know, uh, three digit syllables, you know, of, of uh, I see, you know, world. You know, they all respected us and, and took our word and gave us, you know, uh, what we needed. It was it was really it was a really good relationship. Well, as a side note, you obviously have to come back for a second episode to talk about that other major case that you were running. <laughs> Put that on the back burner for now. Um, and so and to that point uh, that you just concluded with, Tom, you know, you were only the second NYPD detective to be in Afghanistan and you were deployed essentially to a war zone. You left your family for three months to do so as a detective, not military. Um, That's significant. Can you share, you know, as you say, everyone respected the important qualities and the skill set that every individual brought to the table. What was yours? What was yours that you brought to the table, table that you utilized in the eventual success of locating David Rhodes? I, I have a pretty good imagination on how to get things done sometimes uh, and kind of thinking outside the box. And the other thing I have, I have a really strong determination to get it done. And, you know, I've been yelled at by my partner sometimes for not sleeping, for not eating, for just continuing a case until it's done. And that was the way I worked. You know, it was it was a challenge, you know, because I always had in the back of my mind, the bad guy sitting somewhere and laughing that I can't find him, you know, and that drove me. Uh, and that made it that much more of a push to get this done. On top of the fact, it was a U.S. citizen, you know, and I took, you know, my job extremely 
you know, I, I, I had a lot of respect in what I did. You know, I wanted to get this done. This was important. And, you know, once I got over there, it was, it was a mindset with getting over there. It was more of a mental challenge than a physical challenge because I had to, you know, I realized I'm an NYPD detective. I'm not in the military. You know, I have to get a mental mindset of going into a war zone as a detective, you know, and that took as much time. The physical part I wasn't worried about. You know, my, my ability and my experience, I knew was going to be okay going over there. But the mental part of this wasn't the Bronx, this wasn't Brooklyn, you know, this was a war zone that I had to be mentally ready to handle. You know, when we go out on the street as a, as a detective, you have your, your firearm and you have your shield. And once in a while, you'll throw your vest on when you're going to do something. Over there, I'm in an armor-plated car. Um, have, you know, I have my M4. I have a huge, heavy, you know, uh, vest on, a ballistic vest. You know, so the mental makeup of it was a challenge. But, you know, once I got on the, the plane to go into Kabul, I was ready. You know, everything was set because now I just start thinking like a detective again. The the kind of scary part of being in a war zone was out of my mind. I knew my family was okay. They understood what I was doing. Uh, it was a little hard because they knew I was going to Afghanistan, but then they didn't know why because I wasn't able to tell them why I was going. So because of the secrecy of it, because of the classification of the case, you know, so they knew I was going into a war zone, but they didn't know why. So that took a lot, you know, to get past that. But thankfully, I have a really strong family and the best wife in the world who took care of three kids with her full-time job while I was away. So knowing they were taken care of was a positive and a plus going into this situation. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's talk about the operation as much as we can, uh, given the, I don't know if it's all been declassified at this point, but tell us about the operation that you helped design that successfully exfiltrated David Rhodes. Well, once I got, Jim had gotten over there first. Uh, Once we got, you know, that we were both going to be doing this, we made the decision that Jim was going to launch to Afghanistan first. So it was my responsibility being in the United States to get all everyone we could together on one page, you know, with the, uh, the different agencies we had to deal with, the CIA, NSA, you know, and a couple of others that we knew we needed on board to get done what we needed to get done. And all three were extremely important in this situation. And like I said before, the respect level was all there. It didn't matter what I was or who I was, you know, we were all on the same page with getting this done. So the coordination was a lot. It took a lot to do on top of the political aspect of this, you know, being who he was and the paper he worked for, that political side was out there too. And we knew the connections that the paper had to the government. So they were on top of it. You know, numerous high profile government officials were getting briefed on this daily. 
So we had to be on top of our game. We had to have everything in order. We had to have the right information. And as you know, in your field, Emily, you know, you say one thing wrong and it can spin in a really bad direction. (laughs) So we had to make sure we had all everything lined up and the right information being uh, sent around. So after uh, a couple of months, I had gone over to Afghanistan to relieve Jim. Now, in my mind, it was my ball game. I had to, this was my game now. I was going to be able to do whatever I thought I needed to do with this. And the number one thing that I came up with that I knew I needed was a source. You know, when I worked in narcotics, when I worked in the gang unit, and even in some cases in JTTF, you needed a source who knew the area, might know the bad guys, knew the terrain. I, that was my number one priority when I got over there. So working with one of the government agencies, uh, I came up with a plan that the source that I wanted. Now, this agency, the agency had uh, put out there some bad guys and, and stuff like that. And I said, I don't want a terrorist as a source. I want a criminal. I want the worst criminal you have because criminals I trust. As weird as that is, I don't trust a terrorist. I'll trust a criminal because he's going to understand I'm not there for him. I don't care what he does. What he's doing in Afghanistan is irrelevant to what I need. So it got thrown around and I got hooked up with, as my source, the largest heroin dealer in Afghanistan. He was the number one heroin dealer in the country. And that was going to be my source. And Can I, was I ask getting- you, this is this is so fascinating. Can I ask you in this moment, so as you describe that, the the attractiveness of a criminal, what I'm hearing is that for, for, is it because of sort of an immunity quotient? Essentially, you wanted to be able to say to him, like, I don't care that you're breaking the law in this way. I need to be able to trust your word in this information. And I guess the secondary question would be, what was in it for him then to help you? Well, he was, he was a source of this agency. So he was already taken care of as far as whatever I they see. were doing for him, which I didn't care I about. I didn't want to know about. That was none of my business. Right. But it worked out that when we met down in Kandahar, we came to the understanding and I told him, I don't care what you're doing here. That's not why I'm here. Mm-hmm. I need A, B, and C. And we got along famously. I mean, we got along really, really well. Uh, he actually would take care, you know, every once in a while we would meet and he'd say, hey, Tom, don't, don't stand too close to me because I'm a target. I don't want you to get hurt. And, you know, I respected that. I said, okay, you know, no problem. Let's get done what we need to get done. And the relationship we had worked because, again, he knew I wasn't there for him, but he knew what I needed. And an American being held hostage in Afghanistan was not going to be good for Afghanistan. And he understood that because of how into the country and into the political world of Afghanistan he was. So he knew this is not good publicity. You know, so he wanted to get this done for his business as much as helping me out, uh, which I understood, you know, and I played on that. You know, I went to I went to Dubai with him to visit his mother in the hospital. You know, that's the level of of commitment I had to have with him. And once that happened, I got whatever I wanted from him. He provided two proof of life tapes for us. And I kind of knew he knew where he was, you know, so. He gave us the proof of life tapes, which was enormous, because up until that point, we were getting uh, 
you know, bits and pieces that he was okay, which we believed he was. But when you get those those videos and you actually see him, made everyone feel a lot better. So that was, you know, uh, how the, the case pro- progressed. And it was uh, a little tough at times dealing with it because then we found out later on in the case that a kind of third party was getting involved in this and a private security company was kind of getting involved on another end to help out with this case. So that was a little difficult to maneuver around, but it got done, you know, because of. Can I ask you at at whose direction? If there's all of a sudden a competing. The newspaper, they had hired another company to kind of help out with what, whatever was going to be done on that end. Was it because they didn't hold faith in the government agencies to do it? Or was it because it was so classified, the newspaper didn't realize you were already, you were. Yeah, they had their own, they had their own agenda on keeping secret certain parts of it, you know, to take care of their part, which again, I understood, you know, it was one of their employees. And the good thing was that we came to an agreement. We had a meeting at their office once and came to an agreement that this was not going to be publicized. We were not going to put this out there that one of their own was being held hostage, which we appreciated because we knew that the bad guys knew who he was and the newspaper that he worked for, which was their golden ticket, was kind of a nugget for them. You know, such a prestigious paper, they had one of their own. And coming off the David Pearl thing, you know, we were all a little nervous of such a well-known person being held, you know, and how the cards were going to fall. So we didn't want to publicize it and give them any more fuel to the situation they already had. And they agreed to that, which helped out tremendously because it wasn't something we had to worry about. A leak, a story, anything getting out, that was something we didn't have to worry about. So it took that off our plate. We had enough to worry about. So uh, that helped out tremendously. When you accompanied your source to his mother's, what was the purpose of that visit? Did he want to ensure you had loyalty demonstrated to him or he just wanted a buddy or how, you know, what, what about that was attractive to him? So that after, as you said, the doors opened and he gave you two proofs of life and all of this information. Actually, one of the proof of life was given to me on that trip. He had mentioned that he had to go and I said, fine, I'll meet you there. You know, and he was kind of taken back by it. But to me... Again, the the use of a source, which I've used hundreds and hundreds of sources throughout my career, there's a give and take to it. And there's some things you have to do to instill that relationship. And I just felt it was important enough to do something like this. So I told him, hold on to to the video until I meet you there. And, you know, that kind of, that, changed our relationship. Not that it was bad. Everything was going well, but that took it to another level of respect and and what we needed to be done. And I never asked him for it while we were there. He visited his mom. I got him some some flowers and I think a teddy bear to give her. And after he visited his mom, he gave me the video. And I said, okay, great. You know, thank you. And got it back to the embassy and we did what we had to do with it. Uh, So it was just a matter of, of instilling that relationship and him trusting me, which I know he needed to do. So you said at that point that you had an idea that he knew exactly where David was being held. So what happened then after that in terms of actually identifying where he was being held and being able to extract him out? 
Well, there was a number of things that happened that uh, I can't get that into. You know, the the planets aligned, you know, the stars aligned. And, you know, with his help and a couple of other situations that took place, he was able to get out of that situation and we were able to get him home, which was a great day when, when I actually I had actually just left Afghanistan and came home. And a few days later, it was all getting worked out what was going to take place and possibly the day this was going to happen when I left. And the phone call that I got that he got out was a great night. Uh, I was actually at my daughter's softball game when I got a call and had to run to my car, flew down to the office in the city, you know, while we were on the phone trying to figure out what to do, like who was going to go, who was going to go to Dubai and meet him, who was going to escort him home, who was debriefing him at Bagram? There was a lot that was going on once you get him out because the military wanted to do a immediate debriefing of him. So certain information was still fresh to him to maybe locate where he was, locate certain things that, that went on with this situation. So there were a lot of moving parts once he got out. And once we got to the office uh, and figured a few things out, there was already another FBI agent in the area that kind of took over and then Jim took off and met the family in Dubai and then came back on the plane with him to New York. And then once he got to New York, it was, it was very satisfying that it worked. We got him out, we drove him home and he got out of the car and kissed the sidewalk in front of his, uh, in front of his building, you know, and I think one of the most satisfying parts of this M was, about a year later, not even, I don't even think it was a year, but I'll say a year, I, I received a card in the mail thanking me for, for what I did and the announcement that they were going to have a child. Mm-hmm. So that was, that kind of made everything we went through over there, the dangerous situations we were in, uh, the coordination, the sleepless nights, staying up, traveling, staying away from your family for the months that I did made it all worthwhile. So often it seems to me that there's a sheer volume of people, so the, the incredible amounts of people um, whose work goes into bringing people home and bringing them home safely to their families. It goes unacknowledged because so many of them operate in the shadows and, and operate in a place where they can't be revealed. Um, obviously, so many people you worked with fall into that category. But what did it mean to you to be able to drive him home, to be able to see him on the other side and have that moments with him? It meant a lot because you know what, listen, as, as police officers and detectives, you're, you, you get consumed with your case. You know, we don't do it for money. We don't do it for medals. We don't do this for fame. You know, so when you see the success of a case that you worked on right in front of you, that means everything in the world. And even more, like I said to you before, I wasn't able to tell my family why I was there, but a couple of days or a day or two later, I was home and sitting on the couch and we were watching the news and the story came out of him coming home. And there were a couple of particulars about it that one of my daughters looked at me and went, was that, was that yours? And I went, yeah, that was it. You know, and they jumped up and they were happy. And, uh, you know, one of my daughters ran over and gave me a hug. And, you know, that's you, that's you. Not that I was on the TV, but it was, it was the case that I was working on. So that, again, was another level of, of happiness and, and gratification to the end of a, a pretty interesting case. You mentioned, you know, the sometimes 
close calls that you experienced during your time there. Uh, can you describe one of those? Well, one in particular was was pretty scary. Uh, just to get ready for the story, Jim and I, Jim and I had an agreement when we started this and we were over there that under no circumstances were we going to get kidnapped. It wasn't going to be an option. And I don't mean that to be a tough guy. I don't mean it to sound that way. But we just said, we're not going to get kidnapped. We're going to do everything we can, whether whatever it is, to avoid that situation. So one day while we were driving back from a meeting, we made a turn and found us, our car surrounded by about 10 guys with AK-47s, all pointed at us stopping our car. So Jim was had a military background. I had my experience in the NYPD, and I think the best part was we both stayed calm. Jim was driving. I was in the passenger seat, and he got into a discussion with one of the individuals, and we're trying, he's trying to explain to him, we work in the embassy, we're, you know, Americans, embassy, he just kept saying it over and over again. And I saw the guy starting to get agitated and start to raise his voice. So I took a snapshot of outside the car, and I noticed that there was no one behind me in the passenger seat where the window was. They were all kind of to the front along that the driver's side of the car. So I put my back against the window so I could face Jim and face all the bad guys that were surrounding us. And at one point, the guy Jimmy was talking to reached into the car and grabbed the steering wheel. And at that point, I said, okay, this is it. And I grabbed my M4, which was you know between my legs. I hit the safety off, and I told Jimmy, move your head. And he leaned back in his seat, and that guy saw that, and I just stared at him for a second and started to raise my, my weapon up, and he let go of the car, let go of the steering wheel, and I yelled to Jimmy, hit it, and he just floored it. I think we hit one guy. I dove in the back seat and leaned out, you know, the back of the car, waiting for them to start shooting at us uh, to return fire, but they didn't do that. Uh, and actually, while we were driving away, you know, to kind of make it a funny situation, which it wasn't, but I just looked at Jimmy and said, I guess we're not in the Bronx anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, we got back to the embassy and we parked the car and we got out of the car and we just kind of looked at each other and went, hey, we'll see you tomorrow. And we didn't talk about it and it wasn't a big deal. You know, we just kind of like, okay, let's just, let's call it a night and start again tomorrow. Uh, so, you know, when you have situations like that, when you're not in the military, you know, you rely on your experience and that's what I think got us through that without a problem was how calm we stayed and you look back on it and it was remarkable that we were able to do that, uh, in that situation. And Jimmy did his talking. I had the outside of the car until it got to a point where I thought it was, it was getting to a bad level. And we got out of it, thankfully. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. A lot has happened since that time and now. 
both here in New York and in the boroughs and the safety of the streets here and for NYPD. And also, you know, we're no longer officially in Afghanistan and the Middle East is experiencing its own traumas right now. What are your thoughts on where we are now in relation to the experience that you have had specifically with that? Yeah, it's, you know what, it's getting to a dangerous point. And and the problem with these situations is the smallest little event can have a catastrophic outcome. You know, what I mean by catastrophic is is propelling us into a full military uh, situation where any of these events can in a minute happen. And you hope that, you know, you understand 100% what Israel is going through and Hamas is a bad group of people. Uh, with a really sick ideology that they have to take care of. And, you know, with the United States support, hopefully they get through this. But you have to watch the outside people because the one thing about terrorists is they don't have a timeline. They don't have a sense of time. They can sit back and just wait for things to happen and have things planned and laid out, but sit and wait. And my uh, concern is how open the United States is and the people walking into this country, you know, with no problems whatsoever. And the numbers that are walking in here on the terror watch list and other, you know, bad actors that that might be in this country already, they just sit and wait. And you hope to God that, you know, the intel community the people responsible for our safety are on top of it. And the information of these individuals that are in this country come to the forefront before anything happens, not afterwards. Does the JTTF still exist in the same way that it did at that time? Is it still in its full, robust constellation with the different agencies and the same funding, the same support and the same um, purpose? And mission yes, that it yes. had back then, it's still yes, it is. It's still the, the 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 largest in the country in New York because it has to be with the number one target uh, around. Uh, so it has to be on top of its game. And and the other part of it is how strong the Southern District and Eastern District of New York are uh, when it comes to the federal prosecutors. You mm-hmm. know, to have them on board as a very strong advocate of terrorism investigations. You know, that helps also because it's not just a case. You can prosecute them, you can put them in jail. So that's a big part of it. But New York is still, you know, on top of of everything going on. I've been gone for three years now, uh, but I know the dedicated work that's in there. No one wants what happened in Israel, of course. No one wants another 9-11. And everyone always has that in the back of their mind. 9-11 is never going to go away. And what happened before 9-11, you know, and, and the uh, what we took out of it is always on some on, on their minds. So you never want it to happen. And everyone lives that way when they're working. Going back to your source in Afghanistan, did you have any closing interaction with him at all? Do you know what became of him? Were, did he understand how valuable his intel was for you? Were you able to sort of thank him for that exchange and that value. Yes, I did. Uh, When I was leaving, I said goodbye. We talked a couple of times on the phone uh, once I got home. But unfortunately, uh, about a year after that, he was killed. 
in Afghanistan uh, by his competitors, by the people he was always worried about, uh, finally caught up to him and he was killed. And I actually found out about it while I was in Heathrow Airport in London. Uh, that's how we found out about it. So uh, the concerns he had about his own safety and then my safety while we were working together uh, came true, unfortunately. When you think about the tremendous assets that were deployed to bring home an American, rightly so, and then you think about the amount of you know, political and journalistic uh, hostages that are sort of been, being kept in many countries around the world. And obviously, most significantly right now, uh, the hundreds of Israelis that are being kept by Hamas as hostage. What are your thoughts on that and on the enormity of the task to bring them home? It's a tremendous task uh, because of the sheer volume. And you know what? You know, the numbers can change. The numbers aren't rock solid. And where they are, who knows? You know, those, the scariest part, and I was just talking to someone about this today, the tunnels that are in Gaza are just endless mazes. And for them to be in there is very difficult to maneuver, to figure out a way to get in there. Uh, and I understand their Israelis' reluctance to to go in there because, you're playing on their home court. You know, you're a visitor. You know, it's like a football game. It's like a basketball game. You're the visiting team. No one knows that field or that court like the home team. And, you know, they are who they are. They're savages. They're terrorists. And they will do anything they can to protect their assets. And their assets at this point are the hostages. So they're going to hold on to them as long as they can to bargain with, which gets to a scary situation of how long do you let that go on? Uh, what do you give up for them? You know, there's a lot that, that goes into it that is way above my pay grade, but you kind of have an idea of how certain talks are going and negotiations are going, and it's a scary time. How did the operation bringing home David Rhodes impact you as a detective when you came home? How did it impact the rest of your career? It was, you know what, it, it's one of the, it's funny. I had this conversation once that as a detective, it's the case that's in front of you at that point. You know, I, mm. I, I got home, we got him home, and it was on to the next case. You know, there wasn't a lot of kind of, hey, great job. You know, there wasn't, we all didn't go out for a drink. We didn't go out to, you know, it was just, okay, hey, fantastic job. Good job. I need to pick my case up again and start with that. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, celebration with it. And and I don't mean to, you know, we didn't blow it off by any means, but at the time, JTTF, and especially what I was doing personally, I was extremely busy with, with what I had going on. So I had to get back into my case. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of, you know, it was, it was a case. You know, and, and as a detective, that's kind of how you're wired. You know, you get it done, have a successful conclusion to it. What's next? You know, and that's kind of what it was. It's the see you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Like, Good job. Pat on the back. Here's your next one. Mm -hmm. um, so incredible, Tom. Uh, do you have any final thoughts or, or messages that you want to share with listeners about that experience or in general? You know what? It, I'm a I'm just a small part of 
what goes into a case. And, and one of the things that a message we always want to get out there is, you know, detectives, agents, members of the military, human beings, they have emotions, they have baggage, they have problems. But when the bell rings and you need dedicated people to be focused on something that is so important, there's no one better. You know, that's why cops get called to people's worst nightmares. You know, you're calling a stranger that happens to be wearing a uniform to come and help you. You know, people need to realize that the dedication that it takes to do that, you know, 90% of the people in this country would never do our job, no matter what they're paid because of what goes into it. You know, and I just, I, I really want people to understand that, uh, there's so many dedicated men and women out there that put everything on the line to do their job uh, for not a lot of money, for not a lot of fanfare, but they go and do it every day without uh, thinking of anything or wanting anything. And, uh, you know, we say it all the time, see a cop on the street, give him a wave, pat a military member on the back when you see him in the store. And just say thank you, because that's the biggest compliment you can give someone in law enforcement or military. Just an acknowledgement and say thank you means the world to everybody. Tom, thank you for your service, for your extraordinary service, the sacrifices that you've made, all you represent. We're so grateful to you. And we're so grateful to you for this time, for sharing the story. I've been waiting patiently for quite some time (laughs) to hear it. I'm so grateful to finally have heard what really is a tremendous success story. And you're absolutely right. And you are such a humble hero, as is everyone who wears the uniform. You serve day in and day out in uniform and out of uniform. We're so grateful to you. Um, Love your podcast, the Gold Shields podcast. So I will be ready and waiting and listening to your next episode there. (laughs) Thank you so, so much for this opportunity. Uh, Like you said, we waited a while to this. We met down in CrimeCon, which was great. (laughs) And uh, thank you so, so much for this opportunity. I had a great time. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.